Well, if you're able, please rise as we read God's word together from Psalm 79. At the conclusion of the reading of God's word, I will say this is the reading of God. Together we will say thanks be to God. Hear the reading now. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember us our former, against our former, former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us. And atone for our sin for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of your prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, We'll give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. The reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we do give you thanks for your word. You have told us that your word will stand firm and true forever, so uphold that promise now. Guide my words. Guide the hearts of those gathered here this morning. Mold them. Shape them to be more like Christ. It's in his strong name that we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit here this morning. It's, it feels like it's been about two weeks, probably because it has been about two weeks. But it's good. I'm glad that I'm able to return. It feels like coming home. And uh, this morning, we will be concluding our, our short series uh, in, the, in Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament. We'll be concluding that this morning, obviously, from Psalm 79. And uh, from here on out in the summer months, we'll be turning our thoughts and our focus then into to other psalms throughout the summer. It's, it's been a little bit of our tradition over the years. In the summer months, we turn our hearts and our minds to the psalms. So we'll continue that this summer as well. But now let us turn our hearts and our minds into uh, looking at Psalm 79. And I want to start out with an excerpt this morning from something that I have been engulfed in the last few weeks and I found it refreshing and good once again. Somewhere out in the darkness, a phoenix was singing in a way Harry had never heard before. A stricken lament of terrible beauty. Harry felt as he had felt about the phoenix song before, that the music was inside him, not without. How long they stood there listening, he did not know. Nor why it seemed to ease the pain a little to listen. They all fell silent. Fox's lament was still echoing over the dark grounds outside. Albus Dumbledore, the great headmaster of Hogwarts school, had just been murdered by one of his trusted professors. And in this story, 
Harry Potter is had the unfortunate circumstance to witness this terrible crime. And he has fled the scene and now he with some close friends stand and they lament over their trusted friend and mentor and teacher as he lies deceased. And the phoenix bird sings this lament. Harry Potter was close to Dumbledore and he witnessed this and feels this and now the lament of this bird Ease the pain, not only of Harry, but those who surrounded him, his friends and his colleagues. The lament echoed over the grounds. This is what Lamentations does for the people of God, doesn't it? This is what the Psalms of Lament do for the people of God. Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament, they don't remove the pain and the hurt and the sorrow. Harry still saw and witnessed this terrible crime. He still saw his friend and mentor lying there. The lament of the bird did not take away the reality of the situation, but rather it gave it a balm. It gave gave Harry and his friends a voice. They do not pretend, lamentations and psalms don't, that the pain doesn't exist. But rather the notes of the song continue to play and continue to be sung. And the words are sung inside of him somehow. And this too is what the Holy Spirit does for us as we read psalms like this. He takes the words from somebody else, penned by somebody else, sung by somebody, and this psalm is a community lament. It's it's meant for the body of Christ to sing together. Just in the same sense that we had a corporate confession today, so too this is meant for the body of Christ, the people of God, to lament. So just as they lament, it gives them a voice. It gives us a voice. The Holy Spirit takes this song of lament and breathes new life into us, breathes it into our hearts and breathes it into our souls. This morning and over the past few weeks, I don't pretend to think that everybody here is wrestling with some terrible pain or hurt or going through a difficult time. I get that and I understand that. There are some of us who are having some trepidations about we keep going through this hurt and pain. Some of us don't really understand the Psalms of Lament. They may not have struck a tune in your souls over these past weeks. But much like Harry Potter, we hear the song. We've heard it before. So when trial, when pain, when toil does rear its ugly head, And I hate to be the spoiler, but pain will come. Hurt will come. Struggle will come. Trials will come in some form, shape, or another. And when that happens, and in that moment, in those moments, the song of lament will then begin to strike a tune once again in our souls. And my prayer is that we will return here to these psalms, this book, and say, oh yes, I remember. I remember that the Lord God Himself gave me a voice when I don't have the words to describe them. Gives me something to say. Gives me a way to to lean into Himself in ways I didn't know before. And for then, for some of you in this room, I know that are wrestling with hurt. Do wrestle with pain. These songs are singing to you right now. 
And the Holy Spirit is taking these words and from outside and bringing them inside to your heart and to your soul as a balm, as a refresher. He's tuning your heart right now. He's tuning your life to understand just how high, how wide, and how deep is the love of God for you today. It's not removing the cold, hard reality of life, but it is giving us a warm, soft embrace of a loving Father. Giving you hope, comfort, when we need it most. For Lamentations is indeed a book about hope, believe it or not. The Psalms of Lament are not only songs that we sing in sadness and in trial and in turmoil, but they are songs that draw us back repeatedly to the ever-present embrace of a loving and steadfast God whose mercies are new every morning forever. So this morning, we conclude our time in Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament with this unique psalm, Psalm 79. A song that sings the horrors of sin, the horrors of rebellion, the horrors of tragedy as Jerusalem has been destroyed. It asks again the hard questions of God like, How long? How long, O Lord? How long are you going to let all of this happen? How long are you going to let the blood flow in the streets? How long do we have to deal with this? How long do we have to deal with the mocking and the taunting and the pain? How long? It's a psalm of confession as well. It's a psalm that twists and turns through despair. It twists and turns from despair into confession and supplication and then ends in a unique and marvelous place of glory and praise. This is this psalm. So this morning, may we enter into this psalm with expectations, once again, not to find only the cold, hard reality of life, but in the middle of the cold, hard reality of life, we find a God He says, I love you, and I will never leave, and I will be your God forever. Psalm 79 at its core is a song of faithful hope. For the journey it takes us from verse 1, it paints a picture of complete and utter sacrilege and embarrassment for the people of God. If you turn there and just look for me as we, even with me, as we begin to look at this psalm, the Psalm 79 that we see in verse 1, O God, the nations have come into Your inheritance. They have defiled Your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. The very place that Israel thought there was nothing that could touch them has now been defiled and destroyed and completely in ruin. There was nothing worse for them to have the holy temple destroyed. And not only destroyed, but desecrated. If we remember our Old Testament history, the temple has at its root the tabernacle. If you remember what the tabernacle was, it was the mobile presence of God as the people were in the wilderness. You recall, right, the story of Moses and the Exodus and all of these things and how God brought them out of Egypt and brought and across the sea and destroyed Pharaoh's army and brought them into the wilderness. 
And the Lord, in the end of Exodus, describes this thing called the tabernacle about how it is to be set up and the fact that they were creating a place for Yahweh, a tent in the middle of their city to live with them, to reside with them, to be their God. He took up residence as they were in the wilderness. All the while, people remember that the Lord promised that He would provide to them a land, an inheritance flowing with milk and honey, a place of permanence, a place that they could call their own where where God takes them and says, you were once not a people, but now you are a people. Once you did not have a hope, but now you have a hope. Once your hearts were hearts of stone and now they're hearts of flesh. This land, this promised land, where God would remain with them forever and nothing, nothing could separate them from the love of God. And so, as they move into the promised land and they construct the temple, now the Lord is not mobile, but He is permanent. And He is permanently in the residence of the people. They can look at it every day and they can say, this is where Yahweh resides. With us. For us. Going before us. And so now, here in verse 1 of Psalm 79, because of their sin, the very residence of Yahweh, the Lord Himself, all of the promises that He has made to the people have now been trampled and destroyed, desecrated. The very thing that the people of God looked at every single day to remind them of the promises of God is no more. And so they ask the question, how long, God, are you going to let this go on? How long are you going to let the people trample all over you? Us. How long? But they also recognize this was due to their sin and their rebellion. The Lord's honor is at stake. His presence is at stake. His promises are at stake. Everything is at stake. There was deep fear that perhaps the Lord was no longer present with them. This is what the psalmist is crying out. Are you still there? Where are you? Can you hear us? Can you see us? Where would they turn? Where do they go? How would they manage the seconds, the minutes, the hours? Many of us ask similar questions, don't we? How will I manage? What does it look like to continue in the struggle? We ask the same questions. How long? How long is a year? Ask someone who's starting their senior year in high school. How long is a month? Ask a woman who is eight months pregnant. How long is a week? Ask someone who has just completed a vacation. How long is a day? Ask someone who has one day of work before vacation. How long is an hour? Ask a child who was told they have to go to church today. How long is a minute? Ask someone who has missed an airplane. How long is a second? Ask someone who has narrowly missed a car crash. How long is a millisecond? Ask an Olympic silver medalist in the 100-meter freestyle. 
Time is relative. Time is something that we think of as crucial to our existence. But the question remains nonetheless, right? How long? We don't know. We don't really know time. For we're told in Second Peter that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. So when we ask God how long, how long is a day? How long is a thousand years? If this is the case, then why even ask the question? Why does the psalmist ask the question? It seems like a moot point for God doesn't think in those terms. So why ask it? But it feels so important to us, doesn't it? It feels really important that we know how long. How long is it going to take God for you to see me, to hear me, to rescue me? But we we ought not ask the question based upon a 24-hour clock or a Roman calendar. Or even on our own understanding of time as we just mapped out, right? We ask the question based upon the character of God. And this is what Psalm 79 is talking about. In Psalm 79, the author is doing just that. He appeals not to a clock, not to a calendar that doesn't exist when the psalm was written. But he appeals to who God is and to what he has done. You see, because it's the character of the Lord that's at stake in the first four verses. And then the psalmist appeals to the faithfulness of the Lord in verses 5 to 11. And then he appeals to the glory of the Lord in the concluding verse of verse 12. But in order to best understand just what the psalmist is pleading for, we we must have an understanding of just what he understands about who God is. And thankfully for guys like me who aren't always the sharpest knives in the drawer, the psalmist is pretty explicit about what it is that he understands. He's fairly straightforward with the element of God's character that he wants to emphasize, the one that he's truly yearning for. Look at verse 9 with me. If you have your Bibles open, please look there, or if your app's open, go to verse 9. And the the, the tenor of the psalm changes here from desecration and and painting a picture of violence to a cry. And not, not just a simple, nice kind of cry but a pleading for the Lord. If your city's just been burned down and your loved ones have been destroyed and all of your hopes have been destroyed and your dreams have been destroyed, what is your gut emotion happening here? This is what's happening. Help us. Help us, Lord. Why? How can God help? Because He leans into who God is. And what does He say there? Help us. O God of our salvation. God, be who you say you are. Do what you say you will do. Be this God. This is what the psalmist in Psalm 79 wants us to understand. And so I want you to imagine yourself in that moment. And most scholars say that this psalm was written shortly after the fall of Jerusalem in 586. And the very core of the psalmist's faith has been destroyed. Help us, O God of our salvation. For the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Lord, your very character is on trial. Are you going to do something about it? This is not a soft and quiet prayer of lament. This is a cry to the Lord by the Lord's people for his glory is at stake. 
a cry longing for God to uphold his promise to be their salvation, just as he was when he took the people out of Egypt, out of their slavery, out of bondage, and he brought them to himself. Here, the psalmist is looking at a destroyed temple, the residing place of Yahweh, asking him to be Yahweh, asking him to be God, be who you are for us, to us, be our salvation. When will you make this known to your people? The interesting element of this core verse is that the plea is not that the Lord would save them because they are worthy of being saved. Isn't that how we often go into confession? Save me, because somehow I'm worthy of your grace. We may not have those words come out of our mouths, but in our guts, that's often how we feel, isn't it? Somehow we think that we're worthy of God's salvation. But the plea here, according to this psalmist, it's not based upon their worth. It's not that they should be saved. Not that they deserve salvation. But rather that He has already declared to them that He is a God of their salvation. Do you see the difference? See Exodus 20, Isaiah 44 for further reading. The author is pleading with hope. Pleading with hope in the character of God in the middle of the ruin. Because God is a God of salvation the author is able to hope in all things. You may think it's strange to have spoken of hope in Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament, but as we will soon see, there's a great deal of hope even as the city burns, even as our lives are full of busyness, trial, struggle. The question that strikes me this morning about this psalm and about this idea of hope is what does it actually look like for a Christian to hope? We talk about hope quite often. We, we, we think about hope, and I know we use funny illustrations, like it's not crossing your fingers or your toes, behind your back, over your head, wherever it may be. We know that. But past that, what does it actually mean to hope? So in that moment of struggle and trial, then the pastor says to you, have hope. Have hope in the Lord. Well, that doesn't always help, does it? So I... I I think Psalm 79 gives us some really practical ways to say, this is what it looks like to hope. When I'm in that situation, here is what this looks like. So before we go any further, I want us to to take a moment to pause. I, I want us to pause honestly and reflect. Reflect upon today. Reflect upon this last week or a month or this year. Reflect upon the moments of trial. It doesn't have to be something huge. It could be small. But we all have at least one where we didn't know which way to turn. Where do I go from here? How do I get there? Or maybe it's just how we think of as we look around the world today. How do we wrestle with all of this? What do we do with all of the information that's bombarding us from every different direction? What do I do with all of this? How do I have hope in the middle of these conversations? What does this look like for me? 
For some of us, this is super easy. And we can think of 15, 20 of them. For others of us, this is super hard. But the Psalms force us to wrestle with the brokenness, to see and experience the sadness, the betrayal. And so how do we deal with these moments? How do we find hope in these moments? This is the question of Psalm 79. And this is a psalm that its entirety of the people of God to sing as they experience sadness and pain together. This is a, a lament of the community. When people hurt, when the individual hurts, they all hurt. When the individual confesses, the body confesses. When the body confesses, the individual confesses. When the body praises, the individual praises. When the individual praises, the body praises. This is the Psalm 79. Is about. It's talking about judgment, hope, reality. So where do they go? Where do we go? How can we hope in these moments? What does it look like to hope? When we lament, we lean not into ourselves about how terrible the situation is, how confusing the situation is. We lean into the very character of God. This is where we find hope. Not on the internet. (laughs) Perhaps not even in a pastor. But we hope in the character of God. And so as we reflect upon these moments in our lives, I assume that we quickly turn to how we felt and the things that we did or did not do in order to, to cover the pain or to try to figure out the mess. And here the psalmist says to us, move away from yourself. Move away from your thoughts. Move away from all of that. And move towards God. Move towards His character. And so what does that look like? In verses 1-4, to the psalmist terribly describes the heinous nature of sin. The horrible scene is yet again set before us as to the heights and the lengths and the depths, not of God's grace, but of human depravity. The psalmist leans in, not only to who the Lord is, but to what He has done. It's almost as if the, the very person or the honor of the Lord is being called into question. They've defiled your holy temple, God. What are you going to do about that? They've laid Jerusalem to ruins. They've given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. It's almost as if the very person that God is, is, are, are you who you say you are? And the enemies of the Lord do so by defiling not only the Lord, but His creation. For if in the creation account we remember... It's the presence of the Lord that hovers above the dark expanse, right? Above the water and calls creation into existence. It's the presence of the Trinity that speaks into the darkness and calls the expanse to separate, the light and the dark to move apart, the animals to take up residencies. And here's a little plug for children's Sunday school. You should teach our kids because you get to learn this in really easy ways. We talked about the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and the clouds and the rains. We remember this story and he causes them to flourish. The birds to flourish in the sky and the fish to flourish in the sea. This is who the Lord is and this is what the Lord has done. This is the honor of the Lord and who he is. But here in these verses, the presence of the Lord, the temple, the presence just as there was the presence over the expanse. The Lord gives us a picture of his presence in the temple. It's been destroyed. The birds of the air We're never designed to feed on the people of God's body. 
The beasts of the field were never designed to feed on the people of God as they laid waste in the streets. And here in Psalm 79, creation has been flipped upside down, turned on its head, and said, this is terrible. God, where are you? This is the horror of this desecration. The psalmist questions not only the good creation order, but also the very promise of God that His people would be protected and set apart as a great nation. Yet here their blood is spilled in the streets. The very honor of the Lord is once again at stake. The character of the Lord is in question. The psalmist then asks that hard question, How long? How long, O Lord, will You allow Your name and Your honor and Your creation to be dragged through the bloody streets? So He does not call upon His own personal status or the status of the body but sings alongside the people who are experiencing the same tragedy. And they lean into the character of the Lord's honor and demand that He be who He says He is for His honor to be upheld, for His name to be upheld. In Paul's letter to the Romans, he asks a similar question, doesn't he? He wonders who shall be separated from the Lord in chapter 8. And he answers his own question in verses 38 to 39. He pens some of the most wonderful words in all of Scripture. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter if cities have been burned, temples destroyed, loved ones die. Nothing can separate us from the Lord's presence. Nothing will tarnish the honor of the Lord. How long? How long will the honor of the Lord be upheld? Forever. And so we hope in His honor. We also hope in His mercy. We then turn to the middle of the psalm in verses 5-8 to where the psalmist turns to confession and supplication. He pens a confession for the entirety of the people to confess their sins of corporate rebellion against the Lord And so this is a confession that speaks for every person in the community. This is who we are, the nation of Israel. This judgment is because of our rebellion, our sins. And so he is pleading, not on an individual basis, but on a corporate basis, that the sins of generations will be forgiven. The people of God confess as a body, whether it was 100 or 100 million, they were guilty. The guilt of this corporate lament is the same and the psalmist cries out for the Lord to be the God of their salvation. The God of mercy. The God who showed Himself to take His people from bondage of slavery and make them whole. To make them into this great nation. The psalmist says, be that God again. Be a God of mercy. He leans into the mercy of the Lord. Be our God of salvation. Do you hear this cry? You said you would save us. You've shown it to be faithful that you have saved us. Save us. Save me now. Be that God. Be the God of mercy. Be the God whose mercies are new every morning. New every morning. Well, this is a really difficult concept for us to grasp, isn't it? We tend to view the world through the lens of of the individual. It's far more common in Scripture to refer to the sins of the body and the sins of the fathers than it is to refer to the sins of the individual. This is the case here as well in Psalm 79. 
the body of Christ, the people of God, lean into His mercy. They lean into His character, all of them together. They plead for the cross. They plead for the God of salvation. Pleads for a Redeemer to take away the sins of the people. And Jesus cries out in final breaths, it is finished. The mercy of the Lord is indeed new every morning, not because of who the people are, but because of the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. Because Jesus hung on a cross and He rose from the dead on the third day and He sits at the right hand of the Lord, it's from there that He issues these mercies each and every day. So it's there that we lean into God's mercy. We lean into the cross. We lean into the resurrection when it seems that everything is falling away. This is our hope. This is our hope in mercy and the accomplished work of Christ. This then leads us to the last verse of the psalm and the glorious end of our time in Lamentations and the Psalms of Lament. That no matter where we find ourselves in the turmoil of life, we turn our attention away from ourselves. Not to our struggles, not to our pains, not to our hurts. That's not to say that we don't hurt or we don't cry. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we must look and gaze at a resurrected Savior. That we must look and remember the character of God. Remember who He is. Remember His mercy. We recall His honor. We recall His mercies that are new every morning. This then allows us, as the psalmist says, to give thanks and praise His name for who He is and what He has done. Each and every generation from 586 B.C. to the end of time will recount His praise. To recount means to count all that the Lord has done. That means for you to to count how the Lord has been faithful to you over and over and over again. In those moments of trial, we turn around and we see and we look how God has been faithful to us through our lives, through the life of His church from 586 to today and forever. God's people will recount His praise. To recount means to count all that the Lord has done and then to do it again. And then to do it again. And then to do it again. We recount His character. To continually praise the name of the Lord our God. To join in the angelic chorus of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the character of the God. That He is always with us. And He has promised this to us. I will never leave you or forsake you to the very end of the age. So we lean into His character. So join with me. Join with the people of the Lord throughout the generations and the generations to come that we praise and recount His works. How long do we praise the Lord? How long? Forever. To the glorious end of eternity. Forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we recount Your praise. We recount Your deeds. We recount Your character and what You have done for us. Lord, we give You thanks for who You are and what You have done. And Lord, we give You thanks.
and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.